This is VLX number 115, Fraternal Correction. We are in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. VLX stands for Video Lexio Divina, the only patristic Bible study and Ignatian prayer series online. God give you his peace in nomine patris et fidi et spiritu santi. Amen. God our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine patris et fidi et spiritu santi. Amen. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. Today's Video Lexio Divina, that is VLX, is about fraternal correction. Now, I don't usually have URLs linked in my show notes, but today there's going to be some really good secular resources to help with forgiveness that I'm going to explain a little bit later. But you will see seven URLs linked in the show notes, whether you're listening on Apple or YouTube. So, today's topic is fraternal correction. What is fraternal correction? That is when you correct somebody about something in their life, and usually under the aegis of the Bible, under Christianity, it has something to do with their salvation. Now, many people usually get this wrong in one direction or the other. Either they're obsessed with human respect and they never correct others, or they think they need to let someone know every time they disagree with something small. And they think that they're just like, the next John the Baptist, and they're just super honest and everything. Um, but one, most, most people fall into one of those two categories, and you kind of have to push against your natural inclinations on that. As we're going to see in a few minutes from the Church Fathers, the deciding factor on the objective level, level, not the subjective level of pushing against your normal inclinations, the objective deciding factor on fraternal correction is, is this seeking someone's salvation, not your own personal taste? But today is also about forgiveness. At least we should say that forgiveness is the basis of fraternal correction, or it has to be there usually. So let's start with the Ignatian or the imagination way of prayer. I don't think we meditate enough on the passion. So even though you probably expect me to have you picture Jesus giving this talk, maybe next to the Sea of Galilee, let's go to the violence of the crucifixion. Picture Jesus on the cross. That day, that Friday, he died, and you are kneeling at the foot of the cross. Picture yourself kneeling with an enemy of yours, really a real-life enemy. Or if you can't kneel next to this person because this person has hurt you too much, picture that person behind the cross of Christ as you look up. Realizing Jesus is going through this agony on the cross, not only for you, but for that person who has hurt you so much. And this is what I suggest you do, and I think adults and kids can both do this. Picture yourself kneeling at Calvary, looking up to Jesus' face, but behind that cross, 
is the person who hurt you so much. Now, St. Francis, sorry, St. Vincent de Paul says something like, when you forgive someone, you remove the poison in your own heart. When you forgive someone, you remove the poison in your own heart. That doesn't mean you've done worse to the person who may have messed your life up. I don't mean that. He doesn't mean that either. Um, but you are freed. We're going to see that in the Greek in a minute. Forgiving someone doesn't guarantee their conversion. I think everybody knows that. But you do release them. We had in the gospel this line, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, those words loose also mean to release or to dissolve. And the best talk I've ever heard on forgiveness is by Jeff Cavins, which I will link in the show notes. It's called The Hidden Power of Forgiveness, and it will be the first of seven links in my show notes. He shows that word loose right there, which is also used by Christ in other times of the Gospels describing forgiveness. He shows that the Greek word for that, forgive, is to release. When you forgive someone, you release them. See how this kind of sounds like St. Vincent de Paul there? When you forgive someone, you release the poison in your own heart. Even if that person did a thousand times worse to you than vice versa, you're free of them when you forgive it, when you forgive them, and then you can decide to let them into your life based on reconciliation, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Uh, studying that word in Greek, I would also say that word is the same as dissolve. So in other words, and again, forgiveness has to be the basis of fraternal correction day. So I know people might be thinking, wait, we're talking about fraternal correction. Why are we talking about forgiveness? Well, forgiveness often has to be the basis of that. Well, you dissolve a bond that you hold against someone when you forgive them. Now, that's not to say that there's not a case for correcting that person. That's why we're going to see that, that you can forgive and still make a correction. I think that's often lost on postmodern man in many countries. But before we get there, and especially for the imaginative way, can you forgive and release that person who hurt you most? These are actually the most difficult but rewarding periods of mental prayer. So sorry to kind of foist this on you if you just expected an easy day. But a 15-minute, 30-minute, 45-minute, hour-long mental prayer period of seeing Christ forgive you for worse sins than whatever this person did to you. And I don't mean that in the sense of just feeling ethically guilty. I mean, when we really look at the cross to see what it cost Jesus to forgive us, it really can help us forgive other people, even if it takes a while. I'm not saying that has to happen in the 15, 30, 45 minutes, but it really um, can help. Also, this isn't to say that you have to trust him or her again. Oh, and by the way, you're dissolving that bond between you and your enemy as you kneel on those two sides of the cross if you're doing the imaginative way of prayer. But again, that's not to say as you forgive them, you have to trust him or her again. I often say that forgiveness is a one-way street, but reconciliation is a two-way street. There's a very good book written by an evangelical. Just before my traditional listeners think I'm getting too ecumenical, be aware that I saw this book I'm going I'm to describe <laughs> on the desk of a professor at the SSPX Seminary in Virginia, just so you don't think I've gone ecumenical. He's not promoting the theology in it, um, neither am I, but at the human level, this person really understands the psychology of forgiveness. It's a book by Dan Allender called The Wounded Hope, sorry, The Wounded Heart, Hope for Adult Victims of Child Abuse. Dan Allender's book, The Wounded Heart, Hope for Adult Victims of Child Abuse. Now, there's actually one word missing in that title, which I just left out to keep this VLXG rated, but you will find the second link to that in my show notes. So second link of seven in my show notes is that book by Allender. And what he shows in this book, 
yes, forgiveness is a big part of that book, but he doesn't he doesn't overturn Christian boundaries in this. Allender shows that you can forgive someone but refrain from being reconciled with them until they make true and deep apologies in their in your life, especially if they sinned against you in a way that greatly changed your life. I don't mean it should take you a long time to forgive someone who cut you off in traffic. I mean, really, really big wounds of abuse can take a while and to be reconciled, um, he has really strict boundaries on that. Now, sometimes in forgiveness, you just have to say, apology accepted, access denied. Apology accepted, access denied. And we're going to talk a little bit about narcissists today. Narcissists, you have to keep in mind, this, isn't, have to, this doesn't have to do with vanity. This has to do with power and control. Narcissists have replaced entitlement in place of empathy. Just remember the E and the E. Where they should have empathy, they have entitlement. Now, I actually believe there's a lot more narcissists alive today than 2,000 years ago, even more than 500 years ago. Father Ripperger has a new channel, not just a video, but on YouTube he has a new channel that explains the connection between the psychology of demons to the psychology of Marxists or communists. And he has all of his videos, or many of them, conglomerated into a single three-hour video, which I will also link in the show notes. That is three hours long, and it's called Spiritual Warfare and Communism. Most of you don't have time for three-hour videos, but I think it's better than listening to his numerous 20-minute ones, because this way you can just kind of start and restart as you're driving, cleaning the house, whatever else. And that will be the third of seven links in my show notes, that Father, Father Ripperger video, Spiritual Warfare and Communism. Now, that might sound a little bit sensational for him to link demons to communists, but he shows, and remember, he's done numerous exorcisms, he shows that the demons, they actually think they're the victims of God instead of uh, the truth, which is that um, they attacked God. And that's why you should never expect an apology from a narcissist, um, especially a narcissist who's like way off the charts, because it's almost impossible for them without a conversion. And this is why communists accuse others of the very thing they're doing. Uh, let's just look at recent events in U.S. history. Think of how they say January 6th was an insurrection after, the, after they pulled off a stolen election. That was the real insurrection. But let's look at our normal lives. Back to our normal lives on what to do with forgiveness and narcissists. I look at my own life. The few enemies in my life that repeatedly bother me or are new to my life are always narcissists, including a priest right now that's harassing me who most, psycholo most psychologists would say is a grandiose narcissist. A grandiose narcissist is different from a covert narcissist. Now, unless you're married to a narcissist, the only way to deal with such a person is to ignore them. You can forgive them, but you don't need to trust them again. I've been watching many hours of a secular psychiatrist or psychologist, can't remember which one. Her name is Dr. Romani on narcissism. And it really can help you understand your enemies, especially for people that just keep trying to control you as you try to stay away. So Dr. Romani has over a million subscribers to her YouTube channel. She is an Indian American with a New York, New Jersey accent, so I think she's from up there. Now, she's never said anything overtly Christian or overtly anti-Christian on her channel. She's never said anything overtly Catholic or anything overtly anti-Catholic. So I'll just call it a secular channel. Maybe she's Christian, I'm not sure. But I, I do highly suggest this if you're dealing with a manipulator, a controller in your life. Again, if you're married to that person, you can't really escape, usually. The church allows separation when there's physical violence. That's a different topic, though. But I highly suggest listening to this if you're dealing with a manipulator in your life. That, 
Dr. Ramani's YouTube channel will be the fourth link in my show notes. And I often watch her videos. I probably watched um, 50 hours, maybe 100 hours of her videos because there's people in our lives to whom we have to just say apology accepted, access denied, and not feel like we're being unchristian in that. Now, some of you might say, well, why are you linking an evangelical book and a secular person on this VLX series? Are you going ecumenical uh, on us right now, Father, Father Dave? I assure you it's not because I'm going ecumenical on you. But I do have a problem with the fact that most people in the Catholic Church hierarchy and even many Catholic lay leaders are obsessed with canon law where we have evangelicals and secular people actually doing some major footwork on forgiveness, fraternal correction, and everything else. We should have taken the lead on this, but we're just, well, obsessed with ourselves, it seems like, in the hierarchy, and obsessed with canon law. Um, and so if they're going to do better work on the psychology side, which I think can be the basis of theology, again, think of what St. Thomas Aquinas says, grace builds on nature without destroying it. We have to get the nature right before we get the theology right, which is why I don't hesitate on this VLX to describe the nature, the psychology side of understanding narcissists so that when we jump into the theology and the rest of this podcast, you can understand there's some boundaries here. There are Christian boundaries in the 21st century they didn't have 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. I'm the first to say, and I say it all the time, doctrine can't change, human nature can't change, but our, our influence under demons, under the current situation of technology and communism, has created a lot more people who have totally sidelined empathy in their lives and become entitled people. And you have to keep that in mind as we look at fraternal correction. I know this is quite a header, quite a uh, long cushion before we actually get to the verses of the Bible today. But I do think we have to consider grace builds on nature without destroying it. And when we're dealing with the nature of a narcissist, you often cannot correct them. Um, so we need to consider new Christian boundaries as we approach today's section on fraternal correction. Uh, again, to see that some people should not be corrected if they're narcissists. Now, some people might say, well, look, you're on social media. But my reply to that is uh, vanity. I'm not sure it's vanity to be on social media. But vanity, again, has nothing to do with narcissism. If you can prove I have no empathy that I manipulate and control people and live entitlement, then yes, I would be a narcissist. Uh, but I never throw the first punch. So that's probably why I'm not. Back to the Ignatian way of prayer again. Picture yourself looking, kneeling at Calvary, looking up to Jesus' face, and behind that cross is the person who hurt you so much. Now, whether that person has the courage to come and reconcile, and actually say, I forget, or I am sorry, and then you can say, I forgive you, if this person has really tried to make some amends, if it's smaller, they can just say, I'm sorry, and you should just say, I forgive you pretty quickly. Um, but now we can, I think, get to fraternal correction from today's section on Matthew 18. That's just the basics on forgiveness. Check out the links that I've given you from Jeff Cavins, Dr. Romney, Father Ripperger, um, and it can give you a little bit more of the boundaries. Now we can get to the fraternal correction in Matthew 18. So verse 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So one of those verbs there is gained, as in gained your brother back. In Greek, it's ekerdesas, from the root word, first person present, kerdino, meaning I gain, I profit, or I spare myself. Notice that the ESV and the Douay Rhymes Bible uses that verb gain also. Now the Latin there is lucratus, where we obviously get the English word lucrative. So in some sense, it's saying, 
if you do a charitable correction to your brother, then you have won him. Let's see what Father Lapide has to say on all of this stuff. He says, You may say then, our neighbor is to be corrected only for sins against ourselves, not for those against God. But I answer, this is Father Lapide's correction to that, by denying the consequence because Christ by synodoke, speaking of injuries done to us, means to include all other sins. For there is the same, yes, a greater application to other sins. For if our neighbor is to be corrected for injuries done to us, much more for other offenses by which he had injured God to the extent that that is possible. We ought to love God better than ourselves. Therefore, we ought to ward off from him their injuries more than from ourselves. It is as though Christ said, If thy brother, that is, some neighbor of thine, hath offended or injured thee, do not make it publicly known or avenge it, but first reprove him lovingly and secretly. We must understand, if there be hope of amendment by such means, that he will repent and mend his ways privately at thy admonition. Otherwise, in the absence of such hope, omitting the private correction, we must proceed to correction in the presence of witnesses. But if there be no hope from this, we must tell it to the church, that is, to the pastor or to the prelate. But if not even from this, there be hope of amendment, this correction must be altogether omitted and left to God. As charity obliges me to come to the aid of my neighbor when he is at any grave corporal, corporal necessity, so much more does it oblige me to succor or rescue him in any spiritual necessity, such as a state of sin and condemnation, for this is by far worse than a state of hunger, imprisonment, or death, Suarez argues correctly. So notice here that you often have to pick your battles on fraternal correction. Never compromise. We're going to see this later. Refraining from picking a certain battle on a correction does not mean, for example, you smile if someone says a bad joke and you just say, well, I've picked my battle. No, no, no. You can never participate in sin through a smile. Again, if you hear a bad word or our Lord's name taken in vain or something, but often you have to pick your battles. So one of the battles I picked ahead of time is I will not correct the F or the S word in public, but I will correct someone who takes our Lord's name in vain. Uh, of course, if you're talking about your own minor children, then pretty much any mortal sin needs to, of course, be corrected. But when we're talking about strangers or adults in your family of origin or extended family, uh, the main thing here is pick battles based on salvation. But then St. Jerome adds this. He says, if he lose shame and modesty, he will remain in sin. Listen to that quote again, and I'll explain what he means. If he lose shame and modesty, he will remain in sin. In other words, what St. Jerome is saying is if you embarrass somebody publicly about their mortal sin, they're going to dig in their heels and stick with it. And this is one reason why Christ tells us to go charitably one-on-one -on -one to the person first, to, to, to spare them that shame that would make them dig in their heels and stay in their sin. Think of just how different people act in a one-on-one -on -one conversation versus on social media. People, everybody knows this. People say things on social media they would never say in person. And then people will often also say things in groups that they would never say one-on-one. -on -one. But if you have someone one-on-one -on -one out to coffee, there's no guarantee you're going to win them over to Christ on a fraternal correction. And you also have to avoid being like, you know, super spiritual about it. Because sometimes we can be spiritually arrogant while sounding meek. I've lived in the South. I've lived in Louisiana and uh, Florida and Alabama before. And Southern women are famous for this. You know, well, you just need to pray for Wendy. And what they mean by that is, this is my way of gossiping about Wendy, but I'm, 
couching it in very spiritual terms. So gossip can often be couched in spiritual terms, like you just need to pray for her, right? Really, this is a problem in not just Protestant cultures, but Catholic, Catholic problems too. So you go one-to-one on the person. You don't gossip about them under cloak or pretext of, of praying. St. Augustine adds this, Rebuke thy neighbor, he says, between you and him alone, for the sake of the correction and sparing his shame. For maybe he will, through shame, begin to defend his sin. And thus he who you wish to become better, you make worse. Forget your own injury, not your brother's fall, nor suffer him to perish through your silence. If you alone know his fault and reprove it before others, you are not a corrector but a betrayer. So if you know something, you don't go to others under cloak of prayer. You go directly to that person and you only go if it really is a matter of salvation and a few other parameters that we can look at later. And then Father Lapide continues on what we actually need when we do a fraternal correction. When we see someone sinning gravely and we have to correct them, we pull them aside. And here's the two virtues we need. We need charity and prudence. Father Lapide writes, Charity, so that he who sins may feel that the correction proceeds not from hatred or pride, but from love and compassion. And then prudence, that it might be done modestly and gently, and with such circumstances of time and place and manner. So again, you got to be careful uh, not to just be uh, boastful, but you also have to avoid that meek arrogance that we can often do in the traditional world, and I, evangelicals are famous for it too. So you got to be honest and meek without sounding overly pious. This is my favorite quote on, on fraternal correction. It comes from St. Gregory Nazianzen, who's one of my favorite church fathers, and he says, Follow this method, on the one hand correcting him gently and humanely, not as an enemy, nor like a hard and rigid teacher who knows no other way to treat an illness than by cutting and cauterizing. On the other hand, accuse yourself and be aware of your own infirmity. Okay, what does he mean by accusing yourself? Like, let's say uh, you have an uncle who's an alcoholic. Maybe one way to do it is to say, you know, these are really hard times and I find myself, I need two shots of whiskey to fall asleep at night, so I probably don't have, I probably am not the best person to correct you, but um, I'm really worried about your health and I'd like to um, really talk to you about how much you drink. You say that one-on-one, -on -one, we're going to find that uh, we make a lot more headway. And I think that's what um, St. Gregory Nazianza means to accuse yourself, that sometimes you can say, hey, I struggled with this in the past or I still struggle with this, but here's the right path to Christ on, on this front. And by the way, notice what an intervention is on like someone who's addicted to drugs. Notice you probably should go to the person first. Probably most successful interventions have either purposefully or accidentally followed exactly what Christ said in Matthew 18. Someone went first to the person and they didn't listen. And then maybe a group of several people surrounded the person and said, we love you. You're ruining your life with alcohol. You have to stop. Um, please go to inpatient or outpatient rehab. That is often successful, as you know. And then Pope St. Gregory the Great says, One who does not confront things requiring correction, which should be cut off, seems to conspire with the wayward brother. Uh, in other words, you're an accessory to their sin if you don't make necessary fraternal corrections. Father Lapide points out the etymology of the Latin word corrigere. Corrigere is the same as cum alio regere, which is to rule with another. And Father Lapide points out that one who cannot rule himself needs to be ruled by someone else who helps and corrects him. Individuals who were outstanding at correction were Moses, who punished the idolatrous people, Phineas, Helias, John the Baptist, and Christ the Lord, who, making a whip out of cords, 
drove the sellers and buyers from the temple. There can be no Christian charity in anyone unless you offer the medicine of correction to an erring brother. Now, if you're one of the people who seems to be justifying his anger every day by Christ tying up the cords and overturning the temples, the tables in the temple, then you probably need to push against that. If you find if you find that's the only verse you go to, to to justify your life, you probably need to dial it down on fraternal corrections and anger. Father Lapide continues, In the last place, ordinarily, brother correction is only of obligation when the sin is grave and mortal, although, indeed, Cajetan, Valencia, and De Soto think we are under, under an obligation to correct the sin when it's venial. But this does not seem to be generally true, nor is it usual in practice, unless grave loss or scandal follow from the venial sin. For otherwise, the burden of correcting every single trifling fault and being corrected for them would be equally intolerable both to the corrector and the corrected. Uh, so again, what we see here is you got to pick your battles without being lazy or weak. How about this line, If he shall hear thee, thou shalt gain thy brother. I'm reminded of the words of St. James, who wrote, Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so I just mentioned the people who correct too much. How about the people who correct too little, who say, well, I'm going to be pastoral by not saying anything. I'm going to win this person back by not saying anything. Well, the church has a traditional list of nine ways to be an accessory to other sin. Nine ways to be an accessory to other sin. First is by counsel. Number two, by command. Number three, by consent. Number four, by provocation. Number five, by praise or flattery. Number six, by concealment. Number seven, by partaking. Number eight, by silence. And number nine, by defense of the ill done. Let's use a real specific example that keeps coming up a lot. How about going to an ex-Catholic's first or second civil wedding outside the Catholic Church? Can you do that? No. Is it a mortal sin? Is it a grave sin, at least I can say? Is it a grave sin? Yes, it's a grave sin. Now, most priests will tell you, you should go to that ex-Catholic's first or second civil wedding outside the Catholic Church so you can win that person back to the church one day. Problem with that is, first, the end doesn't justify the means. Secondly, the first great commandment comes before the second great commandment. And three, God will never bless with faith the person you're trying to evangelize by you sinning against God. God will never bless with faith you being an accessory to another sin. And what is the sin? In this case, it is making a simulation of a sacrament, faking a simulation of a sacrament. You see, marriage is a sacrament. It's not just a fun day. So again, if you go to an ex-Catholic's first or second civil wedding outside the Catholic Church, it is a grave sin by participating in the sin of simulating a sacrament by a few of those nine ways on that traditional list of participating in someone's sin as an accessory, namely, especially by partaking. So even if you're silent at that civil ceremony, notice that silence is also one of those nine ways of participating in another sin. So unless you're going to go to this like justice of the peace marrying an ex-Catholic and make a big stink and yell at that civil ceremony that someone didn't get an annulment, which by the way, I don't suggest you do that unless you have like a really specific interior calling to be a Savonarola, then just don't go to that ex-Catholic's first or second civil wedding outside the Catholic Church, uh, which they usually do without an annulment, by the way, but that's a different topic. You need to explain to that person in love before that quote-unquote wedding, before that civil ceremony, the gravity of any one loved one in your life leaving the church. How do you do it? Well, as we learned today, you have to go 
one-on-one to that person first. Just as we heard in the gospel, if your brother sins against you, and we just learned from Lapide or against God, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And then we have the next, when, when Christ ups the ante, we have the next verse. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Notice that such a correction you bring to a friend or family member about an intimate part of their life should probably be preceded first by lots of prayer and probably some fasting on your part. Uh, And also the chance for that person, if you start the conversation, to explain first to you why they're making their decisions. You know, recently a couple uh, with a bunch of kids, they were passing through Colorado. We've been friends for 20 years, and they told me of a successful case like this on a family member getting married outside the church. They sat down, this other couple, with so much love in their eyes. It was two-on-two on this case, in this case, and I think they probably had one-on-one conversations before that, um, that they, they had tears in their eyes. They were loving that. They were loving them so much in this fraternal correction. Well, then the other couple getting corrected, they got tears in their eyes and just kind of started crying, being overwhelmed. I know this sounds a little bit sappy, but it really happened. And these are Latin mass folks making this correction. These aren't like overly sentimental people. Well, the corrected couple also started crying and agreed to get married in the church. By the end, they were all crying tears of joy. I realize this is rare, but again, some good friends just recounted this story to me at dinner last week. So it shows it's possible that family does fast a lot. That has to be part of why this was such a successful uh, conversion, but it shows we don't just make corrections to throw hot coals on people's head. There's actually, we actually have to do it in a way that we expect it to be successful. Now, I just read you verse 16, so we don't have, I don't think we have to go through that again, but let's uh, see how you start from this one-on-one fraternal correction, then move on to two people confronting that person to amend their life. We'll see what Father Lapide and the church fathers have to say about that, why we go from one to then two correctors. And it says, Father Lapide says, Christ orders that if the person corrected reject a secret admonition, he must be corrected in the presence of one or two others. And this is for two reasons. One, so that he who is not ashamed in the presence of one may be ashamed in the presence of a greater number. So in this case, we actually do use shame. If you go one-on-one to someone and they're not ashamed, then you kick it up to two people. But again, in in the 21st century, there are going to be some exceptions to this. people who just simply can't take it, who are just ready to crack psychologically. Um, Grandiose narcissists aren't going to hear two people. There are some things that we have, again, doctrine can't change, but the situation in the world is a little bit different from when Father Lapide wrote this. Okay, and then he also says that uh, several witnesses may the more easily and effectively convince him of sin and persuade him to admit This is an example of a successful intervention. Again, someone who has some type of form of substance abuse. This is why interventions can often work. Verse 17, And if he will not hear them, tell the church. And if he will not hear the church, let him be as a heathen and a publican. Father Lapide says, This is the third stage to be observed in the order of correction, that those who are unwilling to listen to him who admonishes them, nor yet to the witnesses, may be brought before the church. Okay, who is the church? Father Lapide answers right here. That is to a pastor or a superior or a prelate, it's a bishop, as to a spiritual father and a judge that he may paternally but with greater authority and weight correct the sin and so bring about amendment. But if the sinner will not be reformed, he may, as a judge cut him off and exclude him from the company of the faithful. For various reasons, this order may be omitted or inverted and sometimes it is required that he who has sinned should be brought immediately to a superior 
When the sin is public, now, as I read Father Lapide, think of these American politicians promoting abortion and still receiving Holy Communion. Yes, I'm talking about Pelosi, but there's a lot more people than Pelosi involved in this. When the sin is, pu- when the sin is public so that it is impossible by means of secret ad- admonition to preserve the good name of the offender, much less prevent the public scandal that the sinner has given by his sin. When the sin is harmful to a third person or the commonwealth, such as heresy, which gnaws like a cancer and which ought therefore to be at once repressed with the utmost rigor and cut off by the pastor and bishop. Good thing all these bishops are going after heretics these days as well as they're going after good priests. Oh wait, they're not. Then we have this line, And if he will not hear the church, let him be to thee as the heathen and publican. Father Lapide says, For he who despises the prelate of the church, giving him admonition, despises the whole church, which he represents and rules and shows thereby that he does not want to be a son and citizen of the church. Therefore, he must be accounted not a faithful Christian, but a heathen and a publican, that is to say, a public sinner. He says, This implies that you must not eat with him, as Paul commands, 1 Corinthians 5.11. That's pretty shocking, but if someone has been corrected numerous times, say, as a heretic, you don't bring them into your family to try to convert them because they could infect your kids with their heresy. In fact, Second John verse 10 even says you don't even greet them, that he may be confused by the disgrace, acknowledge his fault, and return to the church. So notice this isn't just to like do the spiritual flex in his face. All of this is for conversion. In fact, even excommunication is for the sake of conversion. Father Lapide says, For excommunication is pronounced against a sinner, not that he might perish, but that he might amend his ways. For as St. Augustine says, the heathens, the heathens themselves do not reckon in the number of the brethren, but still we always seek their salvation. So when someone's excommunicated, it is to bring them back. It's an act that a bishop should do so as to make that person reform their lives. And the last couple of verses here today, verses 18 to 20, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Father Lapide has this to say. He says, Christ here explains what his church is and its power and authority, that by the church, apostles and prelates are meant to whom he has given full power of binding and loosing, both from sins and from excommunication, so that whomsoever they shall absolve from their sins on earth, God will absolve in heaven, and whomsoever they by excommunication shall eject from the company of the faithful, God will blot out his name from the book of life. He continues, some, and he's not going to agree with these people, some of these people, when we hear this, what's bound on earth, bound in heaven, think this pertains to all Christians. But this is an explanation, says Father Lapide, which cannot be harmonized with the faith applied or verified. This is plain from the fact that Christ speaks of the church in opposition to private sinners and those who correct them. Therefore, by those two words, the church, he means her prelates, that is her bishops, the successors of the apostles, and not the faithful generally. We're speaking about this binding on earth, binding on heaven part. Christ refers to that judgment of the church, this general power of binding and loosing, both in the internal form of conscience and the external form of excommunication. I think this is an important point that Father Lapide is making, because if you talk to Protestants, they think this section is still referring to forgiveness, but it's not. It's referring especially to the sacrament of penance when the priest absolves you and to the church's ability to excommunicate and lift those excommunications. In fact, Father Lapide says just that in the next verse. He says, Therefore, theologians rightly gather and prove irrefutably from this passage the power of excommunication 
as well as the sacrament of penance by way of judgment and absolution. So says St. Robert Bellarmine. How about this line, verse 19, in the Dewey Rhymes, it's again I say to you, that if two of you shall consent upon earth concerning anything whatsoever they shall ask, it shall be done to them by my Father who is in heaven. Now this is where it seems Father Lapide is switching gears because at this point he's saying, this verse does not apply only to bishops. This applies to all of the faithful. Pope, bishop, priests, lay people, nuns, everybody in the church, uh, this refers to them. Father Lapide says these words refer to all faithful Christians. It is as though Christ said, I have ordained that if anyone sin against you, you shall not pursue him with hatred, but shall kindly correct him and regain his favor, because the good of concord is so great and so dear to God's heart that if two Christians, especially if they have been previously at enmity or disagreement, should agree together and unitedly ask anything of God, they may obtain it. And then how about that concerning anything? What is meant by anything? Father Lapide says that is any decent thing, whether it be small or great, whether easy or difficult. Understand, though, that they must ask faithfully, hopefully, humbly, and perseveringly, also that the thing requested is for their benefit. And by benefit, he means eternal benefit, not just earthly benefit. How about this line, there am I in the midst of them? Meaning, says Father Lapide, there I stand and cooperate and guide their desires and prayers and fulfill them. Therefore, I am in the midst of them, as the Holy Ghost is in the midst of the Father and the Son, as the love and bond of both. St. Hilary gives the reason, quote, because he who is peace and charity will make his dwelling place with good and faithful dispositions, end quote. Finally, St. Jerome says, we may also understand this spiritually, where our soul, spirit, and body are in agreement and have not within them conflicting wills, they shall obtain from the Father everything they shall ask. For none can doubt that that demand is for good things where the body wills the same as the spirit. John of Jesus Mary, in the Carmelite devotional Divine Intimacy, writes this, O Lord Jesus Christ, if I had no other reason to love my neighbor, not only he who loves me, but even he who does not, I should resolve to do so solely because of the commandment you have given us to love one another as you have loved us. Just as you, infinite beauty, goodness, and perfection, love me full of evil, and do not reject me because of my faults, so do I, for love of you, wish to love all my brethren. Okay, and now to truly wrap this up today, I told you there was be seven links in my show notes. Well, the fifth link in my show notes is a short blog thanking my donors, but also notifying them of a few small changes that won't affect most people, but it might be a short blog worth reading. Again, the fifth link is a donor blog. And then the sixth and seventh link on my show notes, that is my Rumble and my BitChute channels. It's the exact same material you see on YT, using that abbreviation for obvious reasons, but those other forums are where you can find all these videos if I'm ever deplatformed on YT. So please do subscribe to one of those two. And also thanks to Brandon Smith, who always uploads these videos to Rumble and BitChute. Please say an Our Father for me. Et benedictio Deum omnipotentis, patris et fili, et spiritus sancti, descendet super vos et maniat semper. Amen.